Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and straight in French, sure, but 69 and kissing, now you're pushing it, buddy. Jason has standards. He's going to stick with them. And we have to respect that, I think, really. Just because I'm coming to work at your brothel doesn't mean you get to tell me what I have to do each time around. I agree. Stand up for yourself, much like the characters in this film that we're about to talk about. This season of Awesome Movie Year is about the films of 1987. And we're here at our Sundance Film Festival episode. Well, usually a Sundance Film Festival episode when it can be. And in fact, that's what it is here, 1987 Sundance Film Festival. We are looking at one of the, not the top award getter, the Grand Jury Prize winner, which we do sometimes. That was a film that didn't really seem like it was uh, a good candidate for an episode, I guess. So we're instead talking about a film that won special jury recognition, and that is Working Girls by director and co-writer Lizzie Borden. And uh, it had also played at the 1986 Cannes Film Festival in the director's fortnight um, in May 86. And then in January 87, played at Sundance before being released in theaters by Miramax in February of 1987. It was, you know, the 80s, man. You could tour these things for years, baby. Yeah, I mean, we just, you know, earlier in this season, we talked about Sherman's March, which was also at the 1987 Sundance Film Festival, and that had been playing in various locales, festivals, uh, special screenings and stuff since 1985. So yeah, certainly not something that necessarily, although I feel like some smaller films do end up at festivals for like years at a time before finally being released still. So Josh, the film that you were referring to, which won the Grand Jury Prize uh, for dramatic work, there were two of them. It was Waiting for the Moon, with your friend Andrew McCarthy and your other friend Linda Hunt. Sure. And The Trouble with Dick, which I know nothing about. Yeah, I don't I you know what? I think I had looked this up and I didn't realize that there was a tie there and I'm not sure why I missed that because The Waiting for the Moon is the one that I had kind of looked into about potentially doing an episode on and it's not available to stream or rent digitally and the DVD is you you know available for purchase and didn't look like also a movie that a lot of people liked very much, perhaps uh, outside of the Sundance jury. So that was why we ended up going with this one instead. However, the and, trouble with Dick, sci-fi author is plagued by his publisher's demand to add more sex to his new novel, sexual advances of his girl's sexy best friend and her daughter and hallucinations in which the novel's hero faces desert parasites and alien vixens. Come on. That, that is something. I don't really know anything about it other than what you have just said. So perhaps we uh, should, you know, take another look at that film and, uh, you know, give it some recognition there in our episode. Hey, hey, Josh, you know who had some trouble with Dick? Some of these working girls. Oh, thank you. Mm. Bringing that back into what we're actually talking about. (laughs) This film, Working Girls, which is set in in a brothel in Manhattan in sort of a, some some reviews and, and reports that I read describe it as more of like an upscale brothel, but I think Lizzie Borden specifically talked about it as being, quote, middle class, the idea that it's not one of these super fancy escort services that caters to like the ultra rich. 
but these women are also not streetwalkers. They're kind of that tier in the middle where they're making money that they can maybe live off of, although they're complaining that it's not always enough and their clients are not super wealthy, but they're not, you know, people roaming the streets. Hey man, if you're getting a multi-story um, loft apartment with multiple rooms on each floor in the middle of Manhattan, you're going to tell me that's middle class? I mean, I, I as a business, maybe. Maybe in the 80s, on. right? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure real estate was a bit cheaper in the 80s, but it does look like a pretty nice apartment. I mean, of course. Nicer than the whorehouses you've been to, certainly. <laughs> I have, I have only been in a journalistic capacity to, uh, what was, I think it was Sherry's Ranch in Pahrump, I want to say, years and years ago. So what, were you, those what were you journaling there? <laughs> this was, this was during my, like my earliest days at Las Vegas Weekly. And I was still, I think I was still an intern. And so I tagged along with a writer who was doing an article. He was writing the article, not me about like, what is it like on Valentine's day at the brothel? I remember. And so I just kind of went along with him while he interviewed some of the women there and some, I think some patrons and just, I think I ended up just sitting at the bar for a while while he did. Everybody that. knows the answer on Valentine's Day. It's straight French and 69 or kissing. It's such mm. a special day. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how the article turned out, but I do remember him uh, being eager to bring me along on this uh, journey. What a team you two are. Yeah. <laughs> so this film, surprisingly, maybe, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, but to me, I thought, oh, this is going to be one of these films where Maybe it was barely released in theaters or there's no box office really of any kind, but it actually did okay. I feel like for a small film like this with this kind of subject matter, it grossed $1.8 million at the box office on its budget of $300,000. Again, released by Miramax, which wasn't the powerhouse, I guess, in the 80s that it became in the 90s, but still, you know, a decent size independent film distributor at the time, I think. Yeah, um, I, I read a lot about Lizzie Borden you know, for this podcast. And uh, she, yeah, I mean, this is probably her most well-known movie, but um, she did do a movie called Love Crimes in the early 90s with Patrick Dempsey, where she says that it basically like um, ran her out of Hollywood because it was another Miramax production and Harvey Weinstein had, you know, notorious for a number of things, uh, including um, the editing how he wanted as opposed to how the filmmaker wanted. And she, she said it just ruined the movie and basically ruined her time in Hollywood. Right. And this film that she made independently before selling it to Miramax, not that that hasn't still been a problem. I mean, there's plenty of stories about Miramax, again, especially I think in the 90s, going to Sundance and buying up films that are finished and then Harvey Weinstein it. going in and recutting yeah. them. But that doesn't seem to have happened with this film. Um, which is Yeah, cool. I mean, I'd have to say all things considered, she got off pretty easy in her interactions with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, that's really, I don't know if that's exactly something to be uh, I mean, happy about. No, it's, it's you know, we're making light of a very horrible thing. Right. I mean, and the thing, but you're right. The thing about Weinstein is that, of course, in addition to his more serious uh, crimes for which he is in prison, he was notorious at just as a, a producer for really ruining a lot of these films. It's interesting because he had this reputation as like a kingmaker, right? But he also did destroy a lot of careers just seemingly because, you know, he was a fucking dick, right? 
to right. yeah. I mean, it seemed like if he if he thought a movie was great as it was, he could become that kingmaker and really bring it to this wide audience. Mm-hmm. But if he felt like he could change it, then then he could really destroy the careers and also the films themselves that get released in these really compromised forms. Yeah. Which is, but which hey, is sad. but we're talking about Working Girls, which is a seminal picture in, I would say, um, you know, kind of chronicling sex workers, kind of chronicling the uh, lesbian lifestyle as Lizzie Borden kind of was out front on a lot of these subjects. I mean, we're talking about 1987, Born in the Flames, which I think was 82 or 83, her first movie dealt with uh, some similar issues. So. She was really a forerunner of things before it became, quote unquote, mainstream. Right. She really is. And it's presented in this very matter of fact way, which is sort of the approach of this film to to everything that is depicted in this film. But Born in Flames is very experimental. It's got this kind of loose narrative. Uh, A lot of it, I think, is very rough. And that's also become well-known and influential. Both of the these early films from her, I think, have just built an acclaim over time. But watching them back to back, I mean, this movie is a much more conventional narrative type of film. And for me, at least, I like this one a lot more. I think, Jason, you were kind of lukewarm on both. I was. Uh, Born in Flames definitely felt in the same way as uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. That's what it reminded me of in like the visceral nature and the, the style and kind of utilizing music to move the story along and every time. This, I mean, I was kind of into it for a minute and then it just kind of lost me. I just felt it became very repetitive. And yeah, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. I like the idea of it. I mean, uh, it's basically um, a one-room movie or a one-house movie, right? Single location about these women who are prostitutes. But um, I don't think a lot of uh, the stereotypes that you would assume would in that type of movie are there you know they're more well-rounded characters than that but i do think the men really had no characters at all and maybe that's on purpose but it just it kind of trailed off because of that for me yeah i mean i i disagree with you on that i think it is on purpose that the men are not as well-rounded as the women as characters but i think for the short times that they appear in the film you get a sense of them beyond just uh, like a stereotype or um i think you know the the sexual proclivities of these various men tell you a lot about their personalities in a short amount of time. i just think I, I think the lack of characters uh that they showed on the men also affected our how we got to know the women because there wasn't more for them to build out around through these interactions well, I mean, again, I disagree. I think that the point is that they don't really reveal themselves to these men on a personal level because that's what the job is. And there's a lot of interaction between the women themselves in, you know, those down that downtime that I think tells you a lot about them as characters. Um, this is at least our third film that we've covered about prostitution, I'd say. It is. Yeah, I was thinking about at that least three, Jean- right? Yeah, after Jean Dielman and Belle de Jour. I mean, all of which are in their own ways about sort of the monotony and the mundane everydayness of prostitution. And also surviving in that middle class, right? So right. Uh, I, I'd say this is the least fleshed out of the, of the three. But again, we're talking about the quote unquote number one movie of all time and a movie, uh, you know, and a legendary French film. So what does that mean, right? Right, right. I mean, I think I would disagree again that this is the least fleshed out. I mean, I think this is, 
they're very, very different kinds of films. And I think to me, this is a much more dialogue driven film. And thus I felt like I learned a lot about the characters that way. Um, whereas, you know, Belle de Jour is surreal and dreamlike, but it still does tell you a lot about that character. And as Jean Dielman has, I mean, I feel like you learn how to make entire, schnitzel, Josh, <laughs> right? The entirety of the dialogue in Jean Dielman could fit into like two minutes of this film. Um, but it also tells you a lot about that character via that repetition. So I think it's telling you about these movies are telling you about character in different ways, but I wouldn't put this one lower than this. Well, I already did. So you you're did. in trouble. You did. We keep, I did uh, it. We keep disagreeing, but I will agree with you on Born in Flames. I think Sweet Sweetback is a very good comparison and it does feel very visceral and raw. And to me, it was kind of too chaotic to really come together, but you have to appreciate the amount of like anger and passion that's just being expressed in a movie. Like yeah, and I think chaos is a good word of something that I could have used a little more in this movie. Uh, it yeah. was very, like you said, like uh, I just kind of walked that same line for, for the entire time. It did. I mean, and I like that about it, but uh, I wasn't the only one who liked it. The critics were generally quite positive on this film. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up, although Siskel was uh, Where do they put marginal. those thumbs? That's the question. <laughs> and that, if you've seen this movie, it's a fair question. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, they're, uh, what, the, what Siskel and Ebert do with their thumbs in their private moments is their business. That's fine but, with me. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Ebert, as we've said, uh, I feel like this is maybe a, a more of a young Ebert thing or younger Ebert thing of talking about his own sexual proclivities in his work. And that did not come up in his review. But he was more positive than Siskel, who, again, was a bit marginal, but overall gave it a thumbs up. And uh, Ebert, in his written review, said, Working Girls is not a slick and dramatic movie. There are moments that seem forced and amateurish. And the overall structure of the story is fairly predictable. What the movie does have, though, is the feeling of real life being observed accurately. I was moved less by the movie's conscious attempts at artistry than by its unadorned honesty. The director, Lizzie Borden, has created characters who seem close to life, and her movie helps explain why the world's oldest profession is, despite everything, a profession. Josh, which um, sexual proclivities do you want to write about? in your work that I, I prefer to leave that much like Ebert's thumb <laughs> to, to privacy. Oh, okay. Thank you. I agree with Ebert on this. The, the more interesting stuff. Yeah, there's no flash to it. That's fine. But the more interesting stuff is the stuff that feels the most real. It did. It felt just kind of like a, a cable movie to me in the mid eighties. Like, Hey, this is down the line, but we're going to uh, throw a, a bunch of boobs and stuff in here. So, well, I mean, I don't think this is the kind of thing that would have been made on cable and in 1987. I mean, I think that's part of the point is that she makes this outside the system and that's the only way she can really make a movie like this. I know what you're saying. I'm saying what it felt like to me is I, you know, it felt not too dissimilar from late night Skinamax in some ways. Oh, yeah. No, I again, I disagree. And I think part of like what she's trying to do here is to make all that nudity and the sex stuff, not erotic, not that it's like disgusting or off-putting, but just making it as work a day as everything else in this workplace. And, and, you know, the late night Skinamax where they throw in, you know, nudity as a titillating factor is the opposite of what's being done. Oh, you have no appreciation for the bikini car wash company. We've established that on this podcast before, but, um, 
I'm just telling you from my opinion, there were things that, uh, and I know I'm in the minority. This is a highly regarded film. This one just kind of never took off for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's fine. But I think that even if you feel like this movie didn't work for you, that what it's trying to do, what it's aiming for is very different from what those other movies are. Okay, that's fair. But what I'm saying is it just felt clunky and um, in a way that a lot of those movies feel clunky. All right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you and Ebert in that, like, some of the performances are rough. Although I think for me coming into this film, I, I you saw it first and I had seen your letterboxed review mentioning that. And I go expected a lot. Yes, go for Jason. <laughs> Follow up with Jason on Letterboxd. Um, I think I expected performances to be a lot rougher than they were. And, and for the most part, I liked these performances. I mean, that was probably my biggest issue with the movie. I thought, uh, other than our lead, Louise Smith, I thought pretty much all the performances were not very good. Yeah. Sorry. Well, Louise Smith is, is quite good. And, and she is the center of the film. So Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, Working Girls is not quite as serene and certainly not as passive as it initially seems. And this is the film's achievement. Miss Borden, whose Born in Flames was militantly feminist, here adopts an entirely different approach. Working Girls, though a work of fiction, sounds as authentic as might a documentary about coal miners. The camera attends to the duties of the girls without apparent emotional response. Within the bounds of fairly conventional sex, the girls give the customers their money's worth. The work is grubby and exhausting, but ultimately, it's also a demonstration of women's power. Sex is a natural resource that, as long as the society remains as it is, might as well be exploited. Other feminists might object, but Miss Borden is worth listening to. All right, I'm listening. <laughs> Thank you, Fraser Crane. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any feminist objection to this film i, I kind of doubt it but i suppose it's possible i didn't look into that do you think the women had the power in this one i mean yes and no i mean i think that's probably part of the point is that they do have power to a large degree and there's the discussion at one point in the film among a few of these women where they talk about how they're no longer afraid of men because they realize how sort of powerless those men can be when, because of their work here in the brothel. But I think there's still always that undercurrent of potential danger that even though this isn't a movie about sex workers being abused or, or assaulted or anything like that, there's one scene where clearly there's a client that Dawn, the like college age prostitute, refuses to go ahead with. And we don't see exactly what happened, but it seems like maybe he did do something abusive to her. And they talk about how he's been a problem with other women. And they kick him out. But there's always that that undercurrent, I think, of what could he do? Could he get violent? And what would they be able to do about it? Right. And, um, you know, maybe an incident like that would have kind of jolted this because we're, we're talking about you something you didn't mind from it and something I did, which is just kind of just kind of kept that same level tone the whole time. And I'm not saying like, oh, I needed some sexual violence here, but I'm saying uh, something to take it away from what the tone was the whole time would have been probably uh, beneficial to the narrative in my estimation. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I definitely was thinking, you know, to go back to like Jean Dielman, where you watch that movie and it's very sedate and 
I was anticipating in that film some some kind of violent act is going to shake this up when that is what happens in that movie. And so watching this movie, I thought that same kind of thing could happen. And Born in Flames is is violent and, and chaotic, as we've said. So it's not outside the realm of her storytelling. But I was glad that that didn't happen because I feel like that's become kind of a cliche of movies like this, where you have this sense of calm and then it's shattered by violence because that's what happens to women in this position. And I like that this movie was about the idea that like, you know, it could happen. And as hinted with that one character, like maybe it, it does, it's a possibility, but it's also more just as likely, if not more so for it to just be boring and monotonous, which is what happens to these women on this. Day. Yeah. I mean, uh, and a totally different movie, uh, support the girls which is another one of those kind of like day in the life of movies. Like, you know, uh, there are varying degrees of like, does this work? Does this work all the way? Or does this just become repetitive? And I think in something like Support the Girls, I was a little more interested in that day to day than this day to day. And that's got nothing more to do than just how the film is executed. Yeah, I mean, Support the Girls is a movie I definitely thought of here. And I would imagine that, that this is an influence on that film. And that's one where there is more incident, but there's not like some big act of violence or whatever. And I suppose there could have been something more like this. But I feel like this does have an arc and it builds to the main character by the end of the film, deciding that she's fed up with all this bullshit. And it's not some big act of violence. It's just all the small uh, frustrations. And she's like, screw this job. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. And there's kind of a catharsis to it. Yeah. I feel like it did build there. Maybe, but if we came back in two weeks, would she be working there again? Well, right. Maybe so. And that's, I think, part of what it's about as well. But at least in that moment, we have that, that kind of catharsis. Right. And that character is, um, you know, we're talking about stereotypes. This would not be the stereotype of a prostitute that we have seen or are used to in, you know, pop culture. She is a college graduate and she has, um, well, I guess other opportunities, but this is just kind of the path she chose for herself. Right. Well, it seems like she's trying to pursue some sort of career as a photographer, but like any artistic type career, it takes time. And in the meantime, you have to make money. And this is what she's doing. She says that she's only been doing it for, I think, two months at one point. So this is just presumably meant to be a temporary thing to help support her career as a photographer. And uh, as you know, I'm an artist, so you want to pay me, you know, well, as we establish just give me a call. You your boundaries and that's important. <laughs> so finally, Sheila Benson in the Los Angeles Times said, what we see in the course of that very long day is funny, insightful, banal, sad, tedious, informational, infuriating, everything but erotic. There is a business-like nudity upstairs in the bedrooms between the women and their clients, and one after another, quote, sexual situation. But it would be difficult to find anything remotely sexy in these exchanges. That's exactly Borden's point, and the grinding out of loveless love would be even more depressing if its purveyors weren't as lively, as sharply funny, and as interesting as they all are. Borden, who produced, edited, and directed Working Girls, takes a documentarian stance, and with it comes the death of a lot of cherished cliches. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what you were talking to when I was saying, uh, in certain ways, it reminded me of a softcore, and you're like, well, there's not a titillation aspect to it, and this is what she's talking about here. And and I agree with that. For me, I was saying it more along the lines of, like, just kind of, uh, it just kind of felt hollow in certain 
acting regards to that. But, um, you know, um, I wonder what's going on in that loft now, because that's a prime piece of real estate. Yeah. Was that a real loft, I wonder? Or is that a, a sound? It's funny that you ask. It is not. It is Lizzie Borden's loft, as a matter of fact. Oh, see, and you were mm. saying how much it would cost, but I can't imagine that Lizzie Borden was raking in the money in the 1980s as an avant-garde film artist. I wanted to watch, I think I saw it a long time ago. There's a documentary from 2011 called Blank Generation, and it's all about that New York scene in the 70s and 80s from punk onward and these kind of like down, like, I was a Lower East Side artist or whatever it was, you know, just this kind of scene of CBGBs and then you got, you know, Jim Jarmusch and Lizzie Borden and all these New York filmmakers and just kind of how they all related into each other. I wanted to rewatch it, but I didn't get a chance to do it. But I think part of the point was like, hey, New York was a town where artists could live. You know, it might not be, um, you know, it, it might not be the nicest place. And in, in some in some cases, you might be sharing apartments with rats, but like it all worked for the art scene at the time. And that I think is something that doesn't really exist now because of where we're at with uh with that real estate right yeah not certainly in new york and and it seems like even in some of the outer boroughs there it 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 shifted from lower east side to brooklyn right. to various places but now it's completely pushed out where do you go like. where do you go now josh as an artist I mean, to not new york city presumably a different city where it's cheaper to live there but um you're right. I think that loft is probably some like super upscale, ridiculously overpriced piece of real estate right now. Yeah, I would think so. But it's, you know, uh, these are important things like that cities have, like, you know, art scenes. And, and we know this from living in Las Vegas. Like I gravitated towards a downtown scene that didn't really exist. And all of us kind of just congregated there. And then it started existing, I think, partially because all of us were congregating there. But I was like, the comedian there and there were filmmakers and there were definitely musicians and there were of course visual artists and all types of artists and like you know that i mean for a city like new york to lose that and to lose um you know the kind of generational cheap ethnic foods because people can't make rents anymore it's gonna take away from what that city or the magic of the city Right. Absolutely. And I mean, and I think that's the life cycle of scenes like that. And and the one that you're talking about here is certainly has experienced that over the past, what, 20 years or whatever, where it's now much more expensive to rent spaces in the that downtown arts area. And people who are on the fringes in terms of culture have been pushed to different areas of the city. And then those areas become hot and they get attention and then rents will go up there. And it just is this endless. You become a different city at that point. Right, right. And that happens in all sorts. Like, I'm sure there's there's stories like that in dozens of, of cities around the country in, in their own little art scenes. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> so I think none of us were really familiar with the work of Lizzie Borden before this film. Correct, Jason. I mean, I knew who she was. Obviously, um, I've referenced uh, John Peterson's book, Spike, Mike, Slackers and Dykes, and she fits right into this wheelhouse right here, you know, and uh, he talks about her in there. So um, I hadn't seen any of the movies. I did watch Born in Flames and this, and then I read about Love Crimes, and it just sounds like it's pretty terrible. So I skipped that. And uh, sadly, I mean, she's still around like they do. That's not the sad part, by the way. Um, you know, there's a lot of retrospectives and she has earned this place as like a, like we said, a pioneer in filmmaking, but 
we haven't really seen anything beyond a few TV episode directing things. It would be good to see whether how I feel about this movie or not. I'd love for her to take another crack at something. Yeah, it is a shame. I mean, looking into this and as we often do, what other works of these filmmakers might we want to check out? And other than Born in Flames, which I also watched, there really isn't anything major from her that that love crimes film which she did after this and when this film got a bit of attention film festival awards critics etc and she had the chance to make a more mainstream movie it does sound like it was a complete disaster including from her perspective and it didn't look like it was really even available easily to watch anywhere um so these are the films these two that are now accessible i mean they weren't for a long time but they have been restored and they're easy to watch online now and and that's kind of what her reputation is built on but i i was mixed on born in flames as well but this one i really enjoyed and i would have loved to see more films from her in this mode on this small scale which you think maybe she would have been able to get going but apparently not well i want to two things about that one i mean uh, yet again another theme of awesome movie year, right like it's the 80s and early 90s, and she makes one bomb, and she has a uh, tough time with the producer who probably said she's difficult to work with, right? Sure. So, you know, mm-hmm. she went to director's jail, not just for making a movie that she doesn't even want her name on, but probably because she's a woman, she didn't get these opportunities again, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, that's true. I just think it's a shame that over all the intervening years that she was never able to put together enough money, even to make a film on a small scale. I mean, maybe she, maybe she could have gone back to working at this level. Maybe she just chose not to. I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen her jump back into independent movies. She did do a a movie, a segment in a movie called Erotique, which is like a four rooms type thing, four different directors, four stories. And that one had uh, Brian Cranston, her, her uh, section had Brian Cranston in it, and she said, besides Louis Smith of Working Girls, he was the most daring game actor I've ever worked with. And that is, however, another thing that was horribly compromised afterwards and that she has kind of disowned and was the end of her mainstream work. So, yeah, bummer, but I'm glad that I got to see these films. And Dave, you hadn't seen any of her work before either, had you? No, I hadn't heard of her or any of this, really. And I love this movie. Yeah, yeah, I think Dave liked this more even than I did. You you really like this film a lot. This is uh, this is Dave's year on Awesome Movie Year, I think is what we're <laughs> learning. So. I am liking a lot this year. You're absolutely right. And that makes us happy. So uh, <laughs> do you want to say anything else about the background of this film, Jason? You going to go to any more whorehouses coming up, Josh? Not, not unless it's relevant for an article that I need to write. That's... Not plan. Maybe if they have like a, a movie night at a whorehouse, yeah. I'll end up there. Well, they just the play brothel. movies. We call them brothels, Jason. That's what they really are. Would they would they play movies about prostitution or could they be yeah? I don't know. I'll have to check into curating this film series at Sherry's Ranch and see what they think of it. And obviously that. we live in uh, Nevada where we support legalized prostitution, but I would imagine the three of us living anywhere would support that. I do support that i think and and i think that's one of the things that this movie shows actually is that in the context where it is not regulated but there's a routine to it and there are accepted sort of procedures that it can proceed in as just as a normal business i think you know the fact that it is regulated out here really makes it so it's a safer you know uh, like you said 
transactional situation. Yeah, I think transactional is a good word for it, and and of course that is that is true. We we support support the girls, I guess, and the bo- and, and the boys and the boys absolutely uh, uh, yeah. uh, all genders. If uh, you know their sex workers will support them, and we'll come back <laughs> then and talk more of our general thoughts on working girls. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season on the films of 1987. We're here talking about Sundance award winner, Working Girls, and Jason wasn't a huge fan of this film. Yeah, I mean, to me, what it really came down to, I like, I could say parts of the writing are flat, and you know, you could you could say yes, it it was meant to be that way, and that's fine. I just, the performances lost me on this one. I was interested the first 15 or 20 minutes. I did think there was some good humor in it. And I think Louise Smith is, uh, she did a good job. She's a, she's a good actress. I, and I, that was another thing is when I started, you know, doing research, I was like a little bummed that she didn't do other things. You know, she's a college professor and she teaches acting, I think. But it would have been nice to see her do more. I just felt like after... So what happens is, you know, they come in in the day and different women cycle in and cycle out. And I felt like after we saw those first three women together and we learned about it and we learned, we saw the first few customers and then we saw Lucy, the woman who kind of runs the show, who owns the brothel. Uh, you know, I just kind of felt like after that first 30 minutes, it just kind of tapered off for me. It never went anywhere beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't say that the writing is flat on purpose. I wouldn't say that the writing is flat at, at all. I agree with you that the the performances are variable. I didn't think that necessarily any of the performances were bad. Some of the performances were rough, but no more so really than in other kind of small independent films of, of this type that played at Sundance and became a big deal. I mean, you can't argue that the performances in this are worse than the performances in Clerks for example. I mean, I, I would argue that actually, but I felt like all the men, like I said, I didn't think really other than maybe the old man, he was pretty uh, flamboyant and delicious in his performance, but uh, the rest which of the old men, there were quite a few old men. You just pick whichever one you like, Josh. The, <laughs> the accountant is the one I was thinking of. So the, the, the one who wants to get tied up. Yeah. The one who probably spent a lot of time at studio 54 and, um, <laughs> I imagine uh, likes both men and women based on what we've learned about him. But, you know, with clerks, which I don't want to compare this to, uh, I mean, you know, he held auditions and hired people based on auditions. I mean, there are plenty of independent films that use non-actors. I agree. I'm just saying I felt that the acting was flat in a lot of ways in this one. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are some real Johns in here. I know at least a number of the actors who play the men are actors or other kinds of people. I mean, if you're talking about the 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 older gentleman who likes to get tied up, the one who comes in wearing a bow tie, I was fascinated because that's Richard Leacock playing that part, who is a notable documentary filmmaker and was a mentor to Ross McElwee and does the opening narration in Sherman's March, the, the sort of faux historical narration in that film. Yeah. So, I mean, hmm. you know, that's someone who's also part of the independent film scene that she recruited to be in this. Uh, and I'm not trying to lump everyone in together. I'm just telling you, like, I started feeling like the returns were diminishing about a third of the way through. I mean, you know, we kind of get this thing with Lucy, who 
I mean, that's the real conflict. The conflict really, you know, the conflict with the Johns, they solve very quickly every time. I don't want to work with him, Hugo, or I will or I won't do that. The real conflict is the, you know, what would you call her? I mean, is she a, was she a pimp or what What do you call her? Well, I mean, that's, I think, a, one of the amusing scenes here where they, before she shows up, they talk about how she is a pimp, but she doesn't want to call herself that. I mean, I think you would call her a madam. That's what we think of as, as a woman who runs a brothel. But as she, I think, points out at one point, oftentimes those are sort of managerial positions and the person who actually, like, quote, owns the brothel or runs the finances and, and makes the money is a pimp who is above that madam. And she's just there to kind of corral the women. But in this case, Lucy is also the pimp. She is also the woman who takes the money and is fully in charge of everything. So we could call her both, I guess. All right. And that's- We could call her an entrepreneur. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Again, that's uh, Ellen McElduff, who is a very uh, distinguished character actor. And she's quite good in this movie, right? She and Louise Smith are the two strongest performances, correct? Yeah, I really liked her in this film. And and I think, I mean, she doesn't come in until I think close to half an hour in the film. And she really enlivens it, especially as we've spent a lot of time before that with these women kind of shit talking her, just like in any workplace movie where you would get the employees talking crap about their bosses and grousing about how they're treated or whatever. And then she comes in and she really is like super overbearing and has an inflated sense of her own importance and is very condescending. And it, it's it's amusing, but it also is illuminating about how this workplace operates. At the same time, I think she, well, you know, she does a good job, at, at, you know, defending her actions. And she, um, as an actor, you have to believe what you're playing, right? And I think she does a great job of like, hey, I give you a safe environment. You get to, you know, in Louise Smith's case, you get to make your own schedule. You get to come in and out, make sure that you're um, working and taking home money every day. So I felt like, she is overbearing, you know, she makes um, she makes our lead character stay late. And, you know, there's all those kind of like those things that bosses do to lean on you a little more. But I mean, that's the real power struggle. It's not between men and women, right? It's between the person with the money and the people who need the money. Absolutely. I mean, and this mm-hmm. is I think people have talked about this as a movie about labor struggles as an anti-capitalist kind of film. And I think there's all that there. I think you're absolutely right that that is the key struggle is between workers and management here. And that's why I think it's great that this this can easily be mapped to that same kind of conflict in other workplace films. Even if you want to go back to Clerks, what does Dante have in Clerks? He's not even supposed to be here today. And then he's forced to work a double shift because someone else doesn't come in. It's exactly what happens to the main character in this film. Right. And this is obviously eight years before that. So, or six, seven, right. seven years, seven years. Yeah, seven years. Uh, but, um, and really closer to 10 years because we know this was on the scene since like 85. But Borden, if you watch Borden, Born in Flames, and also this, right? It's sex, it's power, it's money. You know, these are the things that she's looking at over and over again. Right, and Born in Flames is a much more explicitly activist, explicitly anti-capitalist kind of film, whereas this is, I think, demonstrating that within the context of a more character-driven, everyday story, and maybe that's part of the reason why... I liked it more because it isn't as in your face with all this, stuff, I, but it's still clear. I like the energy of Born in Flames. I didn't love that movie either, but I just like the the visceral, you know, it's Pussy Riot, right? Like it's in your face, like you said, and uh, it's going right at you. 
It is. I mean, to me, what was frustrating in Born in Flames is that I was like, I would have liked this more, I think, if it was just a straight ahead documentary about these activists and these issues. But because it has this weird like sci-fi structure and trying to give you this bigger narrative within her very limited resources that I feel like didn't she didn't pull off. Whereas this movie is more modest in its narrative ambitions and stays just in that one location. And as you know, you could find it repetitive, as you said, or to me, finding variations of the same kind of thing. But either way, it's it's less ambitious in that way. And I think more successful. I did like, I mean, I do think it's an effective like one location, like, hey, I have this location. This is what I want to talk about. Um, so this is the movie. Did you care for the bookends where we see the Louise Smith character at home with her girlfriend and uh, what appears to be a daughter? And then at the end, we see her again climbing into bed. And it looks like she just can't sleep at that point in time. Like her partner's eyes are closed and her eyes just kind of stay open. Right. Yeah, I liked those because I feel like it gives you that brief sense of who she is outside of the brothel without having to be too elaborate or heavy handed about it or whatever. She's just, you know, she has this daily routine that you see at the beginning of the movie and they're waking up and they're getting the kid ready for school. And then she gathers her things and she takes her bike to work. And at first, if you didn't know what this movie was about, you might not even know like, oh, here she is just at her workplace and she's, you know, opening the door and turning on the lights and getting things set up or whatever. And it turns out to be this brothel. So I did like that. I also like that end scene. It, it ends on that freeze frame, as you're saying, of, of like her eyes open and then the, all the credits roll. And I don't know if you watch through the credits, but after the credits are done, the freeze, the frame unfreezes and you see her kind of like close her eyes. Mm. And I like that about it as well. I thought that was a nice little. Anecdote. OK, well, you know, I have to I have to talk about certain logical elements here, Josh. And- OK, Jason, Jason, the Vulcan <laughs> of uh, film podcasters. <laughs> and this one's this one. Uh, put the warning on right now, Dave. It's going to be an explicit piece of logic we're getting to. Right? Oh, boy. One of the Johns wants the uh, wants the uh, working girl to, uh, shall we say, perform analingus on him. Yes. Right. And uh, it, what she does is she tricks him and she, you know, puts her fingers in her mouth and then uh, inserts them into the uh, John. And he doesn't seem to know the difference. Uh, he must have a very strong, um, you know, uh, not so sensitive innards. if He can't tell the difference between a, a tongue and a, a digit, buddy. So. Yeah. Or maybe he has a, a strange sense of how rigid someone's tongue might be. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, that did. I mean, I feel like I kept that all G rated in my language, by the way. So I feel good about that. G rated is really the term for it. PG, PG, uh, PG 13. No, you know, so. I don't know if it would fit in the Disney <laughs> yeah. Plus cut of Adventures in Babysitting. But, yeah. After um, they're like, you, you know how they changed bitch. That's what they would do. They'd be like, you witch. I told you to use your tongue. Yes. <laughs> that's that's such a very specific detail that on the one hand it feels to me like something that she probably would have lifted from her actual discussion with prostitutes but on the other hand you're not wrong that it seems like something that the guy would have realized was happening but i mean if you're in that sort of like haze of sexual arousal or whatever you might not have as much situational awareness as you would otherwise, I think maybe the opposite. I think your senses are often heightened in situations like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I did like, once you realize what's happening there, I was, I did think that too, like, mm, 
I don't know if that would work. But if it's a real detail that she got from someone, then maybe it did work at least in one specific instance. You know, um, I guess if you ever get that Lizzie Borden interview, like you did <laughs> with Cher, then uh, we can get to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that I know oftentimes, Jason, you talk about one uh, moment that you found illogical that throws you out of the entire movie. Is that how you felt? No, that moment? no, because those are those are usually like um, those moments that you're talking about that I hate that take me out of the movie are illogical and are simply there to, hey, we're advancing the plot. And if anyone had actually talked to each other, like then none of this would have happened. Right. Like this is just a scene that's contained into that. So the 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 while I didn't believe it, I was like, okay, well that scene's over. I can move on. It didn't have any effect on the rest of the movie, right? Right. Yeah, that's true. It's just one little incident, and I think it's it's meant to show one of the ways that these women kind of take shortcuts or make things easier for themselves to still give the clients what they seem to want and get their money and, and send them on their way. I mean, I definitely fingered that as something to talk about. <laughs> mm, yeah. Mm. Uh, any other moments that you that, liked? That joke might have been a little too tongue in cheek for you. Mm, <laughs> that works on multiple. Yeah, levels. that's so why I good. did it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the best stuff is the girls talking, right? I, I mean, I yeah. didn't really. I thought, you know, you, you one thing we could have had was a bigger variety of the Johns, and I know there were some of different ages and different ethnicities, but I felt like they were all kind of milk toast for the most part. So I would have liked to see some different personalities, but I did like that first, I think the first set of the women, like I said, I like Lucy, that character, but I thought when the first three working girls were together, who were Molly or Louise Smith character, Gina played by Marusia Zach and uh, Dawn, blonde and big boobs as they call her, uh, Amanda Goodwin. I thought they had the best chemistry of the group. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think you spend the most time with them. And at one point, it's, I think, almost abrupt when you realize, oh, they've left because their shifts are over. And now we have other women coming in. We have the kind of skittish new girl who ends up deciding not to stay. And Lucy is very impatient with her. And we have the older woman, April, who is seemingly jaded and she doesn't get picked anymore that much. And Uh, Molly talks about how she's had a rough time because she was like eaten and robbed, uh, maybe because she's also a Coke dealer. Um, And those characters are interesting, but I think maybe that there's not as much chemistry there. And I was a little disappointed to realize that those other two characters aren't coming back, especially Dawn. I think that they explore a lot with her and she's she wants to become a lawyer and she's in college and she seems to kind of look up to Molly, who has graduated from college and is trying to make her way in the world. So um, that was interesting. Um, it's also interesting that that actress, Marusha Zach, who plays Gina, is also the co-writer of the film under a pseudonym of Sandra Kay, and she wrote the film along with Lizzie Borden. So um, yeah, I, I can see how you might find it a little repetitive after a while. To me, I thought there were enough variations that, and it's not a long movie either, that I, I was still engaged through the entire thing. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we should rate this, Josh. So, well, Dave, do you want to have, uh, since you love this so much, did you have any other observations you wanted to add? I mean, I would just say that I, you know, Jason was talking about the Johns not having much personality, but I think that they they have a lot of personality through their, you know, their requests and whatnot. And that's something to bounce off of the girls and give the girls new things to, you know, talk about, complain about, you know, like just kind of commiserate about. And uh 
Yeah, I I loved this as a workplace thing. I mean, I said in my letterbox review, you know, I did compare it to Clerks there as well, and I think that it really is an apt comparison. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you, and I think especially the idea of those those Johns revealing something about themselves via their their requests. So, uh, Jason, you want to rate this out of uh, five Johns? Sure, Josh, or five. Hi, what's new and different? I did love that. The, the sort of catchphrase that Lucy always uses as her way to to like fake caring about the Johns. And there's one scene where she's like super angry about something and the phone rings and she picks it up and she immediately transitions to that bright, what's new and different? You know, that's yeah. so false. And I did really like that. Well, what's new and different here, Josh, is me rating this the lowest, which seems to have happened more often than not lately. I'm giving it two and a half Johns. All right. Well, I obviously don't agree. I give it three and a half, Johns. I think it's rough at times, but overall really entertaining. And if people think of this as like sort of experimental or, uh, you know, difficult to watch or whatever, it's not at all. It's really quite entertaining. So I hope people check it out. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm actually going four and a half. Uh, I had such a good time just watching this like these these girls their conversations. I thought they were so much fun. Also, one other thing I forgot to mention, the really weird score. Uh, really spoke to me a lot. So I like yeah, that. Yeah, that was one of the aspects I didn't care for. It, I think it's I meant see to keep that. you kind of off kilter. And to me, it was just too distracting. But it's very weird. Yes. Yeah, it is weird. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of working girls. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we have been talking about Sundance Award winner Working Girls. And I feel like we've already gone through most of the legacy of this film. I mean, we talked a lot about Lizzie Borden's later career and her difficulties in working in sort of more mainstream Hollywood and the films that were taken away from her. Uh, Beyond those films, she has a few credits directing TV episodes. But even that, after 1996, she has no credits whatsoever as a director. She's continued to work doing some theater. She's done some uncredited rewrites, apparently, on various films. And I mean, Wikipedia is full of all of these lists of, in this year, she tried to get this project going, and she almost got this going, and just none of it has come to fruition, which is really a shame. That is a bummer. Um, we're, We're rooting for another Another one of these, Josh, another Lizzie Borden project. Yeah, I mean, I think these two films, this and Born in Flames, have really gotten so much more attention in the last several years. They've both been restored, Criterion released. I watched the Criterion DVD of this, and it has tons of extra features and interviews. And I mean, they really gave it the full Criterion treatment. So I think a lot more people are appreciating these films, and maybe that'll help her out. Well, Josh, if you're going to have a Criterion edition release, you should get the Criterion treatment. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it it varies in terms of how much extra stuff. It's clear that there are all of these commentaries and and interviews that were recorded specifically that Criterion put together for this edition. And they don't always do that. Sometimes they just put in a bunch of old material and and that's all. Yeah. She said uh, this is a backstage look at prostitution. Yeah. And that makes sense. You mentioned Louise Smith and hoping to see more from her. And she really is. She's good in this film, but she really didn't pursue an acting career beyond this. She was a playwright. And as you said, a a professor, a theater professor at Antioch College. She retired from that in 2020 after 25 years at at that college. So, I mean, that's a pretty solid career there for her, just not in front of the camera. 
uh, must have been interesting to be one of her students and then, you know, oh, you acted in a movie and then watch this film. Right. We talked about that, too, with one of the subjects, I think, from Sherman's March, right, who ended up teaching like documentary film. And would she uh, show the film of her getting hit on by Ross? I mean, this is a little more explicit in a lot of ways, right? True. um, True. (laughs) Josh, we should mention uh, the cinematographer, Judy Arola. She worked with Tom Schiller on Saturday Night Live, and they made eight short films for SNL, including La Dolce Gilda and Don't Look Back in Anger, the John Belushi short. She won a Camera d'Or in 1979 at Cannes for Northern Lights. All right. We mentioned also Ellen McElduff, who plays the madam here. And I think of all the actors in this film, she had the most extensive career after this. A lot of TV credits working uh, on stage as well. And she's married to Eric Overmeyer, who is uh, well known for uh, co-creating a bunch of David Simon TV series, especially as a prolific producer in tv so you know that's a that's a power couple that is a power couple josh uh, she's one of those classic new york actors so we like that josh we had just mentioned amanda goodwin uh one of the working girls here tell me about her role in the 1988 film beach balls where character charlie harrison dreams of being a rock star and with the help of a friend or friends and a gang of local toughs he arranges a concert in get this his house for who a big time record producer or at least that's what charlie thought he was arranging well i'm guessing this is one of those 80s softcore films that you love so much so i'm shocked that you haven't seen it i haven't seen it um maybe he'll uh, open a bikini car wash company down the line i hope so so i guess she uh she got some work in movies like that and uh, maybe that was uh, where she was able to work after. Don't you miss like the, those days of, you know, straight to video movies? And, you know, one of our potential cult classics for this season was going to be Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which fits right in there. I mean, I think as someone who writes a column about direct to VOD films and sees like 100 plus of those a year, I think that still exists. They may not be quite the same type of specific like Skinamax movies yeah. that you're talking about but that that cheap exploitation film is is alive and well in the streaming environment. Am I wrong Josh or have they kind of like mainstream movies uh there aren't as many comedies in the in this world. It's true there are a lot more like horror movies and thrillers that I end up writing about but there are some of those lowbrow comedies I feel like there's a lot of uh weed oriented ones <laughs> as well in this in this current marketplace but yeah you're right the comedies are not nearly as prevalent especially as the horror movies which really dominate there much like much like the working girls dominate their one client in this film <laughs> hey, hey, hey. ask you and you shall receive as long as you pay I had to just bring that back together yeah. So uh, do you want to say anything else about the legacy of this film, Jason? Uh, Josh, this shared the special jury recognition prize uh, at Sundance that year for a movie that I also recommend called The River's Edge, which I'm guessing we'll talk a little more about on our epilogue. Yeah, I know you watched that and like that, and I'm definitely curious to see that film as well. Uh, interesting lineup of films at Sundance that year. So that is Working Girls, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, proposition us online you you can find us working not nearly as hard as we should on our social media so true i'm at uh, go for jason on letterboxd uh jason harris comedy or j harris comedy on all the socials eat this comedy that's a website we're going to be doing some shows 
We're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Um, some old stuff from me still at joshbellhateseverything.com and uh, more posts at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at Signalbleed on Twitter, X, and on Letterboxd. Follow me there as well. And if for some reason you're on Blue Sky, I'm also at Signalbleed there, doing my best to really spread the social medias all over the place. Yes. Got a lot of thoughts on this whole Diane Feinstein situation from this morning. RIP mm. Senator. No, no, no thoughts on that. But thanks for bringing that up. I just thought on Blue Sky, these are the things you talk about. No, they're Probably. just literally the same things I post on the other ones. But if you're on Blue Sky, you can find them there. And also listen <laughs> to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Yeah, you can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Piecing Pod, although not on Blue Sky. And uh, check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, you know what time of year it is? I do. <laughs> I don't have to tell you. You're, you're so excited. I wanted you to tell us about it. <laughs> I am going to tell you. As you know, I love the holiday episodes. And Josh, we are staying in 1987. We're giving a little expanded season this year because there are so many great holiday movies, including a Halloween-appropriate film called The Lost Boys. So tune in next time for The Lost Boys. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.